0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert Judith Weigel.
1: This is a great episode to have this January uh, in twenty twenty three because I understand it's all about children. It's focusing on. Uh, co-parenting, children, everything is child-focused. So we have on the program today, Elaine Taylor-Klaus. Her partner, Diane Dempster, is not here, but they have a company called Impact Parents, and it is a most unusual company. So first of all, welcome, Elaine. I am thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so in your own words, please describe what Impact Parent is.
0: So we are a virtual company. We've always been virtual. We are a a private sector business for the public good. So we are trying, we support parents of what we like to call complex kids, parents and professionals. Uh, Kids with usually with neurodiversity, ADHD, anxiety, Mm -hmm. autism, depression, learning disabilities, that kind of thing. Uh, and we provide training, coaching, and support for for the adults in these kids' lives. Our focus is on the adults, not actually on the kids. And uh, the the secret sauce to what we do is we teach coaching skills to parents and professionals as a as a way to communicate differently with and empower these complex kids to become their amazing selves because they really have extraordinary capacity. And, and when you take a, an empowerment-based approach like coaching, it really sets these kids up for success.
1: Parenting is tough under any situations. Indeed. Co-parenting after a divorce, during a divorce, let's start with during a divorce. <laughs> or before a divorce. or Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Right? So when I say during a divorce, Before the divorce is final, I call it the emotional divorce because Mm -hmm. parents' emotions are all over the place and they have to settle themselves first before they can focus on their children. And then you kind of figure out a rhythm to co-parenting the best you can once it's done. So Mm -hmm. here's my first question to you, complex or not complex children, Uh, while parents are figuring out their own emotions and sorting out uh, the blame that they have to stop placing on the other person in order to move forward and live a life, how can they focus on their kids?
0: Well, it's a great question. And ultimately, the way you focus on your kids best is by taking care of your stuff and your own emotions and managing yourself first. So I, I was just leading, we we run coaching groups and I was just with a group of parents of, of young adults, you know, half an hour ago. And the theme we were talking about was don't take the bait, don't take it personally, like keep your emotionality out of your conversations with your kids because they're having their experience and you're having yours. So as a parent, if you're going through the emotional roller coaster of divorce, it's really important to deal with that and deal with your own stuff and, and get the support you need to manage your own emotions so that you're not dropping that on your kids on top of everything else they're going through.
1: Can't so, do it without professional help,
0: can you? I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm sure some people can, but I think professional help helps a lot. And it's that it's quintessential. It's put your oxygen mask on first, like take care of you. And, and I think it's very hard for parents to accept that taking care of ourselves is taking care of our kids. We tend to see it as um, an indulgence, or particularly when you have complex kids. But I think for all parents, we, we feel guilty. We feel like we should be taking care of, you know, all of this these shoulds around our kids. And, and we think that it's selfish to take care of ourselves. But the truth is that if we don't take care of ourselves, it's really not fair to our kids. That's selfish.
1: Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, p- uh, parents somehow need to get out of that blame cycle. Mm. Blame has a cousin to it. And the cousin is, you've never met my needs. So it's all your fault, the divorce. And because you've done all these things that were wrong and you didn't take care of my needs. So blame and resentment. Okay. Right. Yeah. That is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, And in
0: coaching, we would say, what's the dream behind the complaint? So you got a complaint, right? Whatever that upset is. And you can blame and shame all day long to point fingers. Why? Or you can say, okay, what is it that I really want? What's that dream? which allows you to move towards something instead of getting
1: stuck in that blame place of moving away from something. This has happened all too often in mediations. They're in the blame cycle. Mm -hmm. They come to mediation, uh, to supposedly work out details of the settlement, the co-parenting schedule, the assets and debts, all that good stuff, how to manage two households on the same money that we put into one household. But But they can't focus on that because they're very focused on themselves. And my heart has always gone out to people in that hamster wheel of emotion Mm-hmm. not a therapist I can't get them off that hamster wheel all I can do is say we need to focus on on, on the present but it is possible to get out of the hamster wheel with help some type yeah. of help okay great yeah,
0: yeah no I, th- I think it absolutely is it's hard to get out of the hamster wheel if you're if you haven't acknowledged you're in it in the first place so you know I think for many, many people, and this is kind of this foundational concept of coaching, you have to start by, by helping them find the awareness of what's really going on. If, if a parent, and I see this a lot because I work with lots of couples who are divorcing or have divorced or um, are trying to co-parent after a divorce, there, there is a lot of blame throwing and and it doesn't serve the kids but it also doesn't serve the adults and so so helping them see the ways in which holding on to that resentment is actually their choice and and is actually making it harder for them people really don't do anything if the, if if they don't see what's in it for them and so i think a lot of helping people let go of that blame and in the resentment is the resentment somehow justifies my experience. And so if I hold on to my my resentment, then somehow I'm not wrong, or I've been vic I've been, I've been hurt, or like I can justify whatever those feelings are. And and so getting through it and letting go of resentment and finding forgiveness, even if you're even if it's not about letting go of of who did what, but it's just letting go of my holding on to that negative emotion around it. That's yeah. the piece that I think can be so difficult and is probably the most powerful shift for, for anybody to make in a divorce.
1: I understand. I understand. All right. Let's focus on what you actually do for a living with um complex children. So you work with people who are not divorced and divorced. So it doesn't matter what what situation they're in, you work with them on how to deal with their kids. So let's start with, where do you come in first? When do people call you? When do they need you? Uh,
0: It's it's an interesting question. And the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of always. So I don't work specifically with kids. I work with parents. And I work with parents of kids anywhere from four to 44. And so most of the parents in my community have some kind of a neurodiversity. Although I would say since COVID, uh, we work with complex kids and kids, parents of kids in complex times. So kids are really presenting with neurodiversity kinds of situations now, even if they're not diagnosed with, with a neurodiversity. Um, because these times are so complicated and we're constantly in transition and trying, you know, I think we've all been to some extent traumatized by the world we've been in the last few years. Yeah. So, um, you know, a kid may not be neurodiverse, but a really introverted kid who got used to being at home is going to have a difficult time as the world opens up again. So, so parents can come to us at any point on the journey. Um, often. We get parents who come when they think something's going on with their kid who might want to be diagnosed or need to be, and very often we come. We get parents either shortly after a diagnosis or many years after a diagnosis. So very often I get that we've been dealing with this for eight years, ten years. Nothing else has ever helped. What can you do? Um, but anywhere on on that spectrum, sometimes when I work with with couples. They'll come in and and they know, and, and we, we kind of have the overt conversation. We don't know whether we're going to be able to save this marriage, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. but we do know that that they want to work together to try to consciously be the parents that this kid needs and whether the, the marriage will make it through that or not is, is uncertain. And sometimes it, it can, in fact, help the marriage because it's, it's having the, the, disconnect around a complex kid that's causing a lot of friction in a marriage. Um, yes. Yeah. That can happen a lot. I mean the the propensity the percentage of of the risk of divorce for for couples with neurodiverse
1: kids is is significantly higher than it is for neurotypical kids. So in, in, in a parental situation where you do not have a neurodiverse child, you can have people with dramatically different parenting styles mm-hmm. yeah. that are really, there's friction in parenting. And I guess this could cause a breach in the relationship, just having kids and, and not being on the same page.
0: Absolutely. Cause what you're dealing with in that scenario is a values disconnect. Right. If you, if, if I come to a, to a marriage with a strong value around discipline or order, and you come to a marriage with a strong value around let them be free and, and who discover who they are, and kind of using extreme examples for a Mm -hmm. reason, uh, what, what brought you together as young singles may be very different from what is pulling you apart as, as young marrieds with kids. And, and so the, the, place to look there is to figure out where you do have values in sync and what values are overlapping because it's our values that lead us in how we respond to what's going on or react depending on to what's going on in our in our dynamic with our kids and And looking for what we have in common and where we have a shared agreement about what we want for our kids is way more important than looking at I don't want you to do it that way I don't want you to do it that way.
1: Okay. So then Elaine, they do that. They're having a conversation, but they really believe that their way is the best way. Mm -hmm. Do you come in and work with them on parenting styles and how to meet in the middle and come to compromise?
0: Uh, Sometimes, I mean, we teach a particular perspective. So we teach what we call a coach approach to parenting. So we are enrolling and and teaching parents how to use skills from the world of professional coaching to communicate better with their kids. Um, If we've had this scenario, I was just thinking about this one couple where, where they really wanted to be authoritative parents. They thought that that was a very strong value. And so we coached them through how do you move forward with this and, and sort of got them to experiment with it, with it a little bit and let them see what the results are and then try this other approach and see what the results are and let them make a conscious choice. I mean, my, my husband and I are, I would say, very much in sync um, now, but we weren't always. And... In the early years, I, a couple of years, I'm a coach, and then he became a coach, and I, a couple of years later, I asked him what was the shift, what made the difference?" And he said, "You know, I couldn't deny anymore that what you were doing was working. really? Really. But it took a few years for us to find a way to to work with each other and get on you know, you had to get in the same book before you got on the same page." And it took us a while to get to that point. We got some support. We had a therapist. We had a couples coach at one point. Um, It took some time for us to figure out this is more important to you than to me. So I'll let this go. And this is more important to me, or this is more important for the kid than for you. So you're going to have to let that go. Like, but really understanding if you look at it from a perspective of values and looking for the healthiest expression in that moment for whatever that issue is you can really work through a lot of of conflicts.
1: May I ask what, what was it that got your husband to say, I just had to finally admit that what you were doing was working? I have neurodiverse kids. I have very complex kids.
0: And my eldest kid was particularly complicated and was given to massive meltdowns and tantrums and fits and was we had a really really hard time following through with directions or cooperating, and as I started taking a coach approach and changing the way that I was communicating with them, they got more cooperative, and they were able to move through their life and through their day with less upset and and more peace. And at some point, it became clear that that you know when he was trying to get them to whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Um, it often ended up in a friction and when when I approached it differently he had to get over the fact that he thought I was letting them get away with stuff right Mm -hmm. okay I've Um, heard that a lot that happens a lot but when you've got neurodiverse kids they're not naughty they're neurological and so we have to meet them where they are not where we wish they would be and when you do that you can sort of gently invite them to grow and move in the direction you need and um, and I couldn't, at first it was really interesting. I remember this so vividly. He would ask me to tell him what to do. And I, and I re- remember saying, I, I don't know. I can't tell you. I just, just watch. I, I just can do it, but I don't know how to tell you what to do. So at first there was a lot of challenge because he could see that I, what I was doing was working, but I wasn't yet able to explain it. Uh, as I got better into this and, you know, became a coach and began to have language, I could, I could communicate it more effectively to him. Because what happens often in a, in a dynamic is that one parent will be doing the training or the learning, particularly when you have a kid who's got a diagnosis. And then the other parent, and then they're trying to educate the, the other parent, but the other parent's being resistant and defensive because they don't want their spouse to tell them what to do. They haven't done the learning and the reading. So that's this other kind of really complex triangle that happens.
1: I I want to hear an example. What is a coach? What does it sound like for a coach approach versus this ain't working?
0: All right. My favorite story. Great. True story. My kid is, my middle kid is in eighth grade and she's supposed to go to the school dance. And she'd been planning for a couple of weeks to meet her friends and go to the school dance. And on Friday afternoon of the school dance, she comes home and she says, I'm not going to the dance. And we start talking to her and asking questions and trying to get a sense of what's going on. She's like, I'm not going. And we knew she had friends who were supposed to meet her there, whatever. And she said, she looked at us and she said, I don't need a coach, I need a parent. And my husband said, you want a parent? Fine, get your mm in the car, you're going to the dance. She said, I'll take a coach. So, you know, a parenting approach would be, You follow the direction. I said, I told you to do this. You said, you're going to do it. I'm holding you accountable. A coach approach would be what's going on that you don't want to go to the dance. Have you talked to your friends? What, you know, getting, guiding them through the process to make a decision. So she didn't go to the dance, but she knew why she wasn't going to the dance. She communicated effectively with her friends around it. So she didn't anger her or piss off her friends. Like she had an awareness to the decision she was making.
1: Did it need to make sense to you, her mother? No, it
0: needed to make sense to her. She was a 13-year-old kid. She needed to make a conscious decision. I was much more invested in her making a thoughtful decision than I was in whether or not she went to a school dance. Because okay. as a parent, I could say, well, but I don't want to miss out on that experience. That's and what I was going to do. Devils That's so good for yeah. her socially. and Like I could come up with all these reasons why I think she should go to the dance. Right. But I
1: wasn't the one going to the dance. And that's what most parents would do. They would worry about, oh, my God, she's going to look back. She's going to get mad. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. exactly. No, so so the coach approach is about a, a collaborative process of problem solving with your kids. I want my kids to become decision makers in their lives. I don't want to tell them what to do. To such an extent that they don't even try to figure it out themselves because they know if they just wait long enough, mom's going to fix it, which I did for a long time. I want to guide them through the process of problem solving so that they know how resourceful they are, so that they know when something comes up, they can handle it. So when my son at 19 years old gets in a car accident, somebody hits him, not serious, he um, gets out of the car, he's talking to the other woman, he's talking her off the ledge. Because he's calm and he knows he didn't do anything wrong and he's fine. And he calls us and he says, I'm okay. And I'm waiting for the police. And like, because he's got the capacity to handle what comes out
1: of it in life because he learned problem solving. So is there an age though, that you can use the coach approach, but until that age, you can't, you really shouldn't? No, no, because it's, I mean, think about it. Two-year-olds, we do this with
0: two-year-olds naturally. We say, do you want to wear the blue or the red? Do you want to brush your teeth standing up or sitting down? Like we give them choices when they're really little mm-hmm. and those are decisions. Okay. And then somehow we stop doing that. We feel like it's, they they hit grade school and somehow we expect them to fall in line and start following directions like a good factory worker. But up until then, we we're pretty flexible with them because we, we allow kids in, in preschool and even through kindergarten to, to have more, Input, we're agency, and then we somehow the elementary school
1: years we kind of take it away from
0: them. It's counterintuitive to me.
1: That's such an interesting comment, and i I understand what you're saying.
0: Yeah, that's why I've- Montessoris are so you know so popular because in Montessori they show them how to do something, and then they let them do it, and they give them a sense of agency. And I believe in cultivating, fostering a sense of agency in kids. And you can do that with kids of any age. We say four to 44, but it, you know it, it definitely works with two and three-year-olds.
1: So when your husband came over to the coach approach side, mm-hmm. did he do it well? And did your kids appreciate and recognize that he was changing?
0: Oh, absolutely. And it was really interesting. One summer, a couple a few years ago, now my kids are older, so this was probably, my eldest was probably in their mid-20s, and my youngest was, was kind of six years younger, mid to late teens. And there was one summer where each of our kids, they were in three different cities because, you know, one was at school and one was living in, in L.A. and one was, um, was wherever. All three of them came to us one summer and said, thanks for being coaches. <gasps> It was fascinating. One was, my youngest was, was the director of the school musical and it was using the skills he had learned, you know, the emotional intelligence to navigate all the different drama of a high school musical. Um, And the middle kid was working, I guess it, it was working at a summer camp for complex kids and was learning how to put boundaries in place and set limits and accountabilities. And then, I, I can't even remember what. Oh, the eldest kid is is an actor and was probably on set, navigating something there. But all three of them, to to a number, came to us and said, "Thanks." We really we we get now that we understand how to communicate in a way that many of our peers do not. Wow! Yeah, oh, that's really so- cool. It was like the ultimate parent win. It was great.
1: God, no! That that felt really good to me. So, for everybody listening, uh, if you find yourself uh, with a spouse or with a co-parent that um, has different values, parents differently, don't understand what's going on, on your website, Elaine, you have the parenting style quiz. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and uh, the parenting style quiz is just a—it's just a little glimmer to begin to see. How you're responding as a parent? You know, we tend to we tend to parent either the way we were it was modeled for us, or we try to parent unlike the way it was modeled for us. Right, right, yeah. Either way, when we're not conscious of how we're parenting, we tend to parent reactively. And so, what we are a pro- proponent of is parenting is responding instead of reacting to parent consciously. So in the parenting style quiz, you'll, you'll meet maxed out Maxine and lost Lois and angry Andy and angry Ann and like the, the ways that we tend to react when we're not our best self yeah, as parents. But then we have to remember that there's this conscious Connie or conscious Carl in all of us. There's also this really positive, proactive, thoughtful, responsive parent. And we all have those moments. Ideally, but I think most of us do. When we're not reacting, when we're calm, when we're not taking things personally and not taking the bait. Um, and and what we try to do with the coach approach really is to cultivate that part of ourselves that's that's a conscious parent. Um, and it's conscious co-parent. When I mean, coming back to working with families with divorce, uh, whether you're married or not, you're still co-parenting. And sometimes our job as a co-parent is to help our kids be in relationship with that
1: other parent. A lot of times, our job is to help our kids be in relationship with their other parent, regardless for the of the reason why you're not together anymore. That's right. And so if we can take our own stuff out
0: of it and not put the baggage on it, we can allow our kids and invite our kids to be in relationship with with our co-parent because, Our kids are going to be in relationship with their parents as long as we're alive. Mm -hmm. And most of us, most people, even in a divorce situation, there's still some relationship with the other parent. And so why not put the effort into making that as healthy a a dynamic as possible, not only for your own energy and, you know, karma, whatever you want to look at it, not only because it feels better for you not to hold resentment, but because it's so much healthier for the child. And I, th- I mentioned to you earlier, I had a couple I worked with in um in Northern California. They actually lived in two different states, two different cities. They were a divorced couple. They were co-parenting better than almost any couple I've ever worked with. They were so conscious and so supportive of each other and so not reactive of each other. They recognized that they were good friends, but they weren't great, you know, marriage partners. And they supported each other, and how, and it allowed them to support their kids in, in unbelievable ways. I've never seen anything quite like it. Like it, it was quite beautiful.
1: But and I it's, think it's we all have that capacity to some extent, right? It sounds like it's very relaxing. The edge is off, the pressure is gone, and you can have an e an easier going dynamic with your children. And with the other parent, if you try the coach approach. Yeah. Well, you know what, here's what just came up as you said that,
0: because I, yes, I think there's more peace, more calm, less stress. And part of it is because with a coach approach, you really begin to get a sense of what's really in my control and what's not. Yeah. Where's my influence and versus where's my control? And, and you start letting go of those things that you really can't control. And I remember standing with a, a dear, dear friend in the cul-de-sac one night while his ex-wife was three hours late bringing the kids home. Right. Okay. And it, it happens, mm-hmm. and and he couldn't control that. He couldn't control all the things that he would have done differently, except for when they're with their mother. She's the parent. Yeah. And he had to learn to come to terms with he could. He could influence what he could influence, but you can't influence everything. And I do believe that parenting is a daily exercise in letting go. Oh, um, nicely said. I mean, just every day—that's it's what it's all about. I mean, our job really is to learn to let go and transfer the the ownership, the reins to them, right? But we have to practice that every single day. And and in a divorce situation,
1: you get a fast track to that. Because okay, so wait a minute. So the job is of a parent is to keep their kids safe to, and to let go. How do you make those two things work? It's a good
0: question. I think our job is to keep them safe, healthy, alive to a certain point to the extent that we can. Mm-hmm. But But they are a separate autonomous human being. And we cannot completely do that. We cannot control for variables like disease. We cannot control for variables like accidents. We can minimize risk. Yeah, right. But but we can't, we actually, we can do the best that we can. And, and there's a trade-off between, am I keeping them healthy or safe? And am I micromanaging to the point that they're never going to learn to do anything on their own? Right. So we hold our kids hands when they're five years old and we're crossing a street. But ideally, by eight or 10, they're able to
1: cross the street by themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's our job. OK, so let's do a little bit of an extreme situation here. So you have a complex child, which can be... um a little destructive to a relationship if both parents can't handle it. And quite often one parent can't handle it depending on the extent of the complexity, right?
0: Or can I just add one thing? Or quite often one parent also has their own complexity. Okay, say more. Well, you got a kid with neurodiversity, you got at least a 50% chance that one of the parents has neurodiversity too. Oh, Okay. So it's okay, so often not diagnosed.
1: Mm, but the they're. parent typically goes in denial. Or the
0: parent just doesn't know. I, I have parents call me every week. My kid was just diagnosed and now I'm realizing I do too. I <gasps> have it too. Oh. All, I, I was diagnosed in my forties because oh all my kids were diagnosed. It's like something's, something's going on here and it's
1: not the water. It's neurodiversity. It's genetic. I I really never thought about it that way. Okay, but here's where I want to get to. So what does the parent do who gets what you're saying, wants to take the coach approach, is all in on, this is my child. I don't care what the issues are. I adore this kid and I'm going to give it my all, completely opposite parent. What what does the parent who's all in do? I love this question. So what
0: we often say is it only takes one parent to turn the tide. And that's because you can't control your co-parent, but you can control or you can pay attention to your relationship with your child. And your relationship with your child is what sets the tone for their self-concept, for how they see themselves, their self-esteem, for theirs for, for you, all it takes is one adult in a child's life who believes in them. And and is in a healthy, constructive relationship with them, for them to learn to be in a healthy, constructive relationship with themselves. It's ideal if it's both parents. I really love to try to to get parents to work together, but but I get a ton of calls from parents saying, I can't do this because my my co-parent, my spouse isn't on board, doesn't believe in a fill in the blank. Right. And my response is always, so start with you. It only takes one person in a child's life, to make a difference in that child's life. And the research supports that unbelievably.
1: And you can't worry that I'm the strict parent, I'm the this parent. I'm like, when people say that in my mediations, I'm like, no, you're the responsible parent and your child will know it yes. as he or she gets older. They're not going to look at you uh, in an adverse way because you made sure the homework was done because you, you know, talked things out differently. If you do it respectfully, if you
0: do it from a pl- collaboratively. Now, if you do it with a hard line, I've got to compensate for my other parent who's who's Right. If you're, then you're over calibrating. Okay. Right. So the goal isn't for, to have one extreme and the other, you need to be consciously in relationship with your kid and meet your kid's needs. If this kid needs a little bit more structure, then what do you need to do to work with them to create more structure? If this kid needs a little bit more license and flexibility, then how do you create that? But you You know, I often say that when you've got a parent of multiple kids, if the kids turn out really different, that's a sign of good parenting because it's a sign that you're not trying to have all your kids fitting into a mold. I get it. I get it. Our job is to meet each of these interesting, fascinating, growing humans where they are and help them become whoever they're supposed to be. But that doesn't mean help them become who we think they're supposed to be. And that's hard as a parent.
1: You know what that is, and that was such a great statement you made. I, I want to close this little piece with um, a, another question, and that is, what do you do, Elaine, when your child comes back from the other parent? We'll just say dad. I, it's, I'm not. Men are not worse than women. Just comes back from dad. But we didn't. You know, we stayed up till like eleven o'clock at dad's house. We did video games. I had such a good time. An eight year old who's supposed to yeah. be in bed at nine. Yep how's mom supposed to react?
0: Well, I'll start with what, what we don't want to say is I can't believe we let you do that. That's so unreasonable. You know, you need to go to bed. Like we we want to stay out, keep reserve our judgment for a separate conversation. And maybe you've got a healthy collaborative way to have a conversation, a co-parenting conversation with your, your ex, hopefully. Um, so you want to keep the the conversation about the parenting with the parent okay right mm-hmm. so with a kid you can talk about maybe it's well how was it hard to get up to go to school the next day not in a judgment way but to again to help raise a child's self-awareness help them see was i get it was really fun what would happen if you did that every time every night what would that be like so that you're not judging it, right? But you're you're bringing in what we call metacognition, right? You're raising a child's awareness to the the natural consequence of that choice and whether that's a choice they want to continue to make, but the impact is for them of that choice.
1: I see. I I, I really do get it, and so it's more of a coach approach that you're engaged with your child. How did you feel when you got up? How would it be? What do you think it would be like if you did that every single night? Just getting their input and their perspective. I think that's brilliant, Elaine.
0: And not not interrogating them, but staying right, curious. Exactly. The term that I would use is curious. I mean, in our family, we used to have something called rock and roll lifestyle. So rock and roll lifestyle was when a kid would say, I want to stay up late to do this or that, or we've got whatever it was. The deal was, okay when you're in rock and rock and roll lifestyle when you're a rock and roll star you still got to get up when the bus is leaving or the plane's leaving the next morning and make it to the next show in the next town right. so doesn't matter how late you're up all night you still got to get up and go the next day and so we always had this deal of it, the there was a construct around it so it wasn't just oh you can stay up late it was understand that if you stay up late that means it might be harder to get up tomorrow morning and um so what, what will help that happen and getting their buy-in to it? So even if you have a kid in another person's house, uh, at an ex's house, you might, before they go, knowing that this is likely to happen, instead of judging them and making it wrong, you may start asking questions to the kid before you go. Now, what do you have coming up? Are you going to need to try to get more sleep? How, like, how's it going to go for you? What, so that you're raising a child's choice to what they're doing instead of
1: it feeling like Disneyland. This is so wonderful and amazing. And I would be remiss if I didn't end this interview with this question. What goes on in Sanity School? (laughs) You have Sanity School on your website. Should I be going to Sanity School? Don't you think everybody deserves Sanity School? I love that. I do.
0: Um, Sanity School is a, it's a, technically it's a parent behavior training program. Um, what it really is secretly is a coach approach to parenting or supporting kids. Cause it, we have one for teachers. It works for professionals and educational therapists, et cetera. Um, it's a coach approach with kind of a neurodiversity lens. So it's a, it, it teaches a foundational framework of coaching skills and an understanding of executive function and, and other aspects of neurodiversity. So, and there's an interactive quality with exercises and a community and you know, office hours so you get feedback. So there's lots of lots of other pieces that come with it, but it's it's designed to invite to teach adults how to be more coach-like in their approach to their kids, to their work, to their spouses, to to whomever.
1: You and it's fun. Just- It sounds like fun. You just made a very difficult topic and situation, you know, experience in life manageable. Just listening to you, this has become a manageable relationship. Well, I appreciate that.
0: Thank you for that acknowledgement. I I think that the goal is incremental change. And if we can focus on the process of creating change instead of only holding ourselves accountable to the outcomes, then we can be in the process. And I had a coach once who said, and I can't remember the numbers, I got to look this up. But I think if you, if you make 1% improvement every day, 1% every day when it builds, at the end of the day, you've made a 37, year, you've made 37% improvement or something. I mean, it's I can't remember the numbers, but right. but the notion is to really focus on tiny little changes instead of really big ones, to really little bits, to move the needle a little bit at a time. That's what has a cascading impact. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Incremental change
1: has an exponential impact. Incremental change has an mm-hmm. exponential impact. That's excellent, excellent philosophy. Elaine, I want every single human being to get in touch with you, Thank so you. that you're overwhelmed. <laughs> I would love that. That'd be a great problem to have. We can yeah. handle it. Yes, and even though your information, your contact information, will be in the show notes, you know there are people that, when they're listening, like to jot down uh, contact information. So easiest way to get in touch with you.
0: Well, the the easiest way is impactparents.com, and um, I do believe. Do you catch me if I'm wrong? That we have a gift that that we've got a free guide for for please your community. Is that okay? Absolutely. Um, And so I think I'm going to make this up on the spot because I don't have it in my notes. But we'll do impactparents.com/slash. What's the the title? I don't want to say divorce. Slash. What would be useful? What would co-parenting? Co-parenting with a dash. Yes. ImpactParents.com slash
1: co-parenting. Right. If because you're, you're there, a parent when you're not married. You're a parent. Right. You're parenting when you're married.
0: Well, and you're co-parenting even well, when
1: you're married. Living in
0: the same house. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So we'll do ImpactParents.com slash co-parent. And um, we'll have a, a guide there for you of sort of the top 12 coaching tips that we use to, to talk about parenting complex kids, but really good for all kinds of kids.
1: This is excellent. I've learned a lot and I'm not a kid any longer. And <laughs> I've learned a lot. Thank you, Elaine. This is wonderful everybody. to Yeah. This was wonderful to have you. And thank all of you as always. If you have any comments on the episode, if you have any topics you would like me to explore for you, you can reach me through speaker pipe on my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And by the way, on February 14th at noon, Pacific time, I have a workshop with a woman named Patty McGuire. It's called Recipe for a Heart Healthy Divorce. And we're going to give you the four ingredients uh, to a much better divorce experience than you could ever imagine and put you more in control of yourself while you're going through what could possibly be an out of control situation. So please look for information on my website about that. You'll be able to sign up. Again, it's free and it will change your life, I guarantee you. So thank you, Elaine. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today.
0: Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.